Welcome back to Pizza Spins. My name is Emily, and I am once again joined by my favorite co-hosts, Angel Winkleplek and Jackson Burnett. We're your own. Hi there. I have one question before we begin. Why do you guys think Blister in the Sun is about heroin? Why do you not think it's? I don't. I told you what I think Blister in the Sun is about. It is about heroin. It could be about heroin. No, I think they've said that it's about heroin. It's not about masturbation. They get really mad when you say that. Okay, then what's with all the masturbation? I think it's about a person who's addicted to drugs and sex and then goes out to stalk people. And he's so high when he goes out that he dies of exposure while he's out. I I think the lyrics are very explicit. I think that's the only legitimate interpretation. (laughs) However, I am willing to hear alternate suggestions. Well, the thing is, there is no literal interpretation. Um, and I think that Gordon Gano would really appreciate you saying that, honestly. Like, you having that in-depth uh, lore behind Blister in the Sun. Yeah, he's like, finally somebody listened to the fucking song. Right, exactly. Um, great. Well, today we are going to be talking about Violent Femmes' self-titled album. And, y'all... CC's in Knoxville closed. Like CC's what? Pizza is closed. Wait, that's the one in Bearden? The one um... Yeah, the one in Bearden. So we couldn't get the macaroni pizza. And that's that's why we're doing pizza bagels instead of macaroni pizza, because it's closed. Wow, man. All it took for CC's to crumble at our feet was one pandemic. I know. And you thought that if anything would outlast the pandemic like a fucking cockroach, it would be CC's pizza. Yeah, because the cockroaches that like are in the building would just start working right exactly <laughs> like a joe's apartment situation <laughs> here's a fun little piece of uh host backstory for our loyal listeners me and emily actually went to that cc's pizza after she broke my hand during a play called black comedy we I literally left the hand. hospital we just found out that my hand had been negligently broken by the stage manager and the director and the fight choreographer my own personal disregard for safety of course had nothing to do with it (laughs) and we just found out my hand was broken and we went to cc's and we called the director and the artistic director and we were like hey guys hands broken and they were like let's have one more rehearsal just to see let's see if we can do this farce where you have 75 stage falls with your hand broken (laughs) So like I said, today we're talking about the Violent Femmes, and they are an eclectic three-piece acoustic band from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which started out, oddly enough, as a humble rhythm section in the summer of 1980. Their near 40-year-long career spans generations and genres, and their first studio album, the one that we are covering today, is regarded as one of folk punk's seminal releases. So, Angel, you have them to thank for one of your least favorite genres. Oh, I'm going to have a lot to say about this, but I'll sit on it for now. Good, good, good. The first of our major players is Victor DeLorenzo, who was 26 at the time of the band's formation. And interestingly enough, his career in entertainment began as an actor at the tender age of five. He performed in local theater productions, commercials, and modeled throughout high school. And when he was 16, he decided on a whim to purchase his friend's old drum kit. Apparently, he had been working at a um, 
uh, what are they called? Apparently, he had been working at a hotel and had saved up enough money, and he was like, what the hell, and he bought it. And this is when he says his true love for music began to take hold. Um, He attended college at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, studying both music and theater. And during his sophomore year of college, he was picked to fill a spot on the local theater troupe, which had been left vacant by none other than Willem Dafoe. While he left this group, which is called Theater X, when the Femmes began to take off, he returned to the stage for various roles throughout his life. And honestly, it's kind of the dream career for me. Um, Brian Ritchie, the one and only bassist for the Femmes, was introduced to De Lorenzo through a mutual friend. Now, Ritchie was a few years out of high school in 1980 and was described as a very eager and talented young guy who, before becoming a full-time musician, often wrote reviews of local bands in a Milwaukee fanzine. The two, hitting things off, began to play together regularly as like a jazz duo, you know, just drums and bass. Um, And during these first few months, they were honestly like just a couple of friends covering jazz standards together, usually at home. They played with a handful of musicians at local scenes, but like many successful groups, they had no intention of ever becoming successful, even saying that they never even thought that they could be. Even the band's name, something that many musicians put lots and lots of thought into, just kind of found its way to the guys. One day during a visit to Brian Ritchie's parents' house, the bassist made some offhand joke about his brother being in a band called the Violent Femmes. Richie says that femme was a pretty popular slang term which he and his friends used to describe someone who was a wimp or a sissy, which we could unpack that later. Uh, But the two of them found the contradiction between violent and femme to be pretty clever and catchy, catchy enough to use anyway, and it just kind of works. So the final member, Gordon Gano, which I thought it was Gano for the longest time, but apparently it's Gano, was a 17-year-old singer-songwriter who was sort of discovered when he auditioned at this local uh, open mic event in Milwaukee. Quick anecdote, Gano is the son of a Baptist reverend, Reverend Gano, (laughs) and as far as I can tell, he was like a cool reverend. Like, he taught Ah. uh, Gordon how to play instruments and organize theatrical performances of, like, real plays, not just the Christmas play or the Easter or the crucifixion, which, oh my God, why do we dramatize that? Um, So Gano is a self-described devout Baptist. Like in the liner notes of their second album, he describes himself as a devout Baptist, but has made a point in interviews to insist that his religion does not correlate with his political beliefs, which of course we love to hear, but on the band's later albums, there is a clear gospel influence with Christian themes, which were largely lost on the Femmes fan base and contribute to why their self-titled remains their most popular album to date. Yeah, I remember hearing, like, reading something about one of their albums after this that was, like, okay, I have only heard this album and then, like, a few scattered songs from Violent Femmes, so I'm not going to pretend to be deeply familiar with their discography, but I want to <laughs> say that there was an album after this that was, like, in, like basically Christian rock, which I read that and I was like, huh? See, I don't think that it's the album that comes after this is called Hallowed Ground, and it's That's more like, like country folk kind of. Um, 
I wouldn't call it Christian rock, but they definitely, basically Brian Ritchie, there's this interview with Brian Ritchie where he's like, you know, at first we were really opposed to him talking about God and shit, but then we thought it was kind of funny to sing about God in front of a bunch of punks. We liked it. We thought it was clever, but like it was basically lost on everyone, which I don't know. I kind of get it. Like after a certain point, I'd be like, all right, guys, like where's the joke, you know? I do think that is funny to sing about Jesus to a bunch of punks. Sure. <laughs> anyway, back in 1980-whatever, when Gano auditioned for the uh, open mic event, the venue operator took note of his maturity and his specifically emphatic voice and decided to put Brian Ritchie in contact with him. Now, initially, the plan was for the three guys to work together only for the summer, as Richie and DeLorenzo were wanting to move to Minneapolis come fall. They had a couple of buddies up there that they were planning on forming a band with. However, when the three started working together, they came to the conclusion that their sound was just too good to pass up and that they would remain in Milwaukee at least until they made it big. And thus, the original lineup of the Violent Femmes was born. Gano brought with him a handful of songs that he had written throughout high school in an unmistakable voice, which Richie had once described as a pint-sized Lou Reed. Gano himself was very creative and had been influenced by musicians like Lou Reed, Hank Williams Jr., and Patti Smith. Many of his songs were written from the perspective of a character and intended to be performed as such. His exposing and vulnerable voice paired beautifully with Richie and DeLorenzo's sharp beats and brassy tone, and because of their analog setup, they became known for busking anywhere and everywhere in Milwaukee. This became sort of a trademark in the early days of the group, and is attributed, albeit incorrectly, to their industry breakthrough and discovery. On August 23rd, 1981, so this is about a year after they originally got together, the boys were, as usual, auditioning around town, trying to rustle up a gig for the evening. After being turned away by a local club, the three decided to set up to busk for the night underneath the marquee of the Oriental Theater, where the Pretenders were playing that evening. The story goes that during sound check, a couple of the band's members heard them playing, uh, checked them out, and then went back inside. But then a few minutes later, frontman Chrissy Hine comes out, watches for a bit, and then uttered that coveted phrase that every up-and-coming band hopes to hear from a headliner. Want to open for us tonight? <laughs> and of course they did. And uh, the night goes down in the history books as the way the Femmes got their big break. However, this is not really the case. In fact, the crowd reacted to them as most of Milwaukee had reacted at that time, with boos. Literally, they booed them. Gano said in a 2016 interview that, quote, it was a tremendous experience, but it didn't lead to going on tour, getting any more gigs, or getting hooked up in the industry, or getting a record contract, none of that. In truth, the next day came and they went right on back to their regular schedule of trying to get gigs. It wasn't until a year later that they did the performance which ultimately landed them their first record deal. The real story is that in 82, they went to New York to play a couple of shows around town, one of which was opening for Richard Hell at none other than CBGB. That night, Robert Palmer, who was a music critic for the New York Times, happened to be in the audience and wrote a review which included much more about the Femmes than Richard Hell himself. I don't fucking know who that is. 
You you do know Richard Hell and the Voidoids. You know. No. We've <laughs> talked about Richard Hell and the Voidoids. I'm so, I'm sorry. I don't. Got no clue. <laughs> All right. Um. So every punk episode I've done has been for nothing. Clearly. Did you <laughs> talk about Richard Hell? I actually don't know if I have, but in my brain, if you know one thing about that scene, you know all of it for some reason. Mm-mm. No, that's just you. I know. I just assumed. <laughs> it's my autistic special interest. It's not <laughs> universal knowledge. So in that review, Palmer said, quote, Some of Gaino's songs have the discursive rambling structures of folk era Dylan, some of them have the ruthless, self-immolating bite of the best Lou Reed, but they manage to be catchy, too, with repeating pop choruses, one goes away humming after just one hearing. Mr. Gano is a find, but the Violent Femmes are a band, not a star backed by two sidemen. Pretty great compliment to get. This review is what ultimately led to their being signed with Slash Records in their first release, in 1983. The Femmes have one of the most organic and gradual rises to fame, and even now, while still releasing music, they're kind of like a cult classic. It took eight years for Blister in the Sun to hit the Billboard Top 100, which is probably why they are often incorrectly remembered as a 90s band. And at that point, they had already sold over 500,000 copies of that album. DeLorenzo left the band a couple times throughout the years, but for good in 2013, citing a great deal of disrespect, dishonesty, and greed, having this to say in his goodbye letter. As John Lennon once said, quote, the dream is over. In regards to my history with the Violent Femmes, the dream never quite got there. So on the evening of June 26, 2013, on the stage of Marcus Amphitheater at Summerfest, I gave the world my last performance with Violent Femmes. Milwaukee, we were yours for the night, and now forever. De Lorenzo is still a working musician and actor with a son who he seems to be very proud of. They play music together, and his life just sounds really fucking awesome, and I would just love to have like that be my print on entertainment. You know what I mean? Just... being able to do what I want to do to the degree I want to do it and then back out when I'm not into it anymore. It's really awesome. Through some sort of settlement, it seems, Gaino has retained licensing control of all of the Femmes' music, which caused a little stir between the group in 2007 when Gaino let the fast food chain Wendy's use Blister in the Sun in a commercial. Brian released a fucking hilarious statement criticizing Gano for this sellout behavior. I will now do a dramatic reading of a few lines. No, the whole thing. Basically, the first part is like, I didn't do this. No, the the whole thing. (laughs) How long is it? It's not that long. Okay, fine. (laughs) I just, I want it in context. I want to hear it all. No, Because it was meant to be delivered. Excellent. If I release a statement on something as serious as someone using my song in a Wendy's ad unauthorized, I want to hear the whole thing. Well, he doesn't have to authorize it. That's the whole thing. That's horrifying to me that Gano has just managed to 
have all rights to the music. Even he, though does like he write all the music? Like, is it credited yeah. to him or is it credited to the fence? It's all credited to him. Yeah, that's that's how Roger Waters got the wall. Literally, how the fuck did he do that? Is it just that album? Uh, it's no, just, if it's you're like, the writer, if if you if it's credited to the writer, like if a band breaks up and their songs are credited to individual writers as opposed to the full band or a partnership like Lennon McCartney, usually if that goes to court, the songwriter gets the rights. But you, bands have figured that out, so usually they don't even bother to fight it because it, it almost always goes to the songwriter. Okay, so there's this uh, blog called On Milwaukee. I'm sure it was a print, you know, paper or something. Um, but they're pretty, I, I feel like they're Milwaukee's like shining star, right? So most of the stuff that I found about them all comes from this like Milwaukee newspaper. So it sounds like they take a lot of fucking pride. In fact, Victor DeLorenzo wrote a little jingle for like Milwaukee Travel Center or something. It's online. You can find it. But they they really care about this. So I guess like Brian knew that and cared enough to release a statement back uh, in, in light of this Wendy's commercial. For the fans who rightfully are complaining about the Wendy's Burger advertisement featuring Blister in the Sun, Gordon Gano is the publisher of the song and Warner's is the record company. When they agreed to use it, there's nothing the rest of the band can do about it because we don't own the song or the recording. That's showbiz. Therefore, when you see dubious, or in this case, disgusting uses of our music, you can thank the greed, insensitivity, and poor taste of Gordon Gano. It is his karma that he lost his songwriting ability many years ago, probably due to his own lack of self-respect, as his willingness to prostitute our song demonstrates. Neither Gordon, parentheses, vegetarian, nor me, parentheses, gourmet, eat garbage like Wendy's burgers. I can't endorse them because I disagree with corporate food on culinary, political health, economic, and environmental grounds. However, I see my life's work trivialized at the hands of my business partner over and over again, although I have raised my objections numerous times. As disgusted as you are, I am more so. God, you were right. He's a pretentious fella. <laughs> this man described himself as gourmet. Either I'm a gourmet. Does that mean you only eat like manuka honey, you piece of shit? <laughs> you eat manuka honey off the fucking the the out. Al- you eat that off of the money that it you earn from an album that got popular eight years after its release. You eat manuka honey. What the fuck? Like, oh. isn't that such like talk about an overreaction? <laughs> that is yeah, so extremely funny. <laughs> I think I would be mad if okay. Is he not, is, since, okay, since Gano is the songwriter and he gets uh, presumably all the royalties from this, I could see you being really fucking mad if you're not getting that Wendy's money. Like, you sold us out and I don't get any of the money. So I'm literally, I only stand to lose in this situation if I'm Brian. Yeah, and that makes sense. Like, I, I agree with that. I hadn't really thought about the royalties aspect of it. Um but I don't know how long the commercial played for, or if you give someone license to use your song, 
in a commercial, is that like a flat fee or do you get royalties every time it plays? Like, I don't know the logistics. I think you cut a unique deal each time. Mm. I don't I know, but I, fe- I feel like there's probably like an industry standard percentage, but I feel like certain people might negotiate to get better or worse deals depending on how popular they already are. I will also say... I need to find this Wendy's ad because I cannot conceive of a Wendy's ad using blister in the sun and it being good. No, the guy's just like holding a sack of Wendy's and like running around and there's a voiceover that's like, when you need food on the go, go to Wendy's or some some shit like that. Like it's the most boring normal ad ever. I don't know why they use blister in the sun. Yeah, the most half-assed commercial of all time. They probably took out the vocals and just had the do 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 But even I'm not gonna lie, seem like very commercial. I don't know. I get it. It was 07. Like everything was like extreme sports, Blink 182. Like you know what I mean? It was kind of a okay. Yeah, I also didn't know what year they had made it. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. A lot of their instrumentals do sound like royalty-free stock music i think definitely the lyrics and the vocals are where they shine the most oh like for sure yeah i like the music but it definitely sounds like something you don't have to pay for (laughs) that's calling calling (laughs) music royalty-free is one of the most passive-aggressive things i could possibly say about any music like if you ever hear me say something is royalty free just know that i have very strong feelings of animosity towards it it's also almost never totally royalty free all right let's take a minute here and discuss the concept of selling out okay yeah because we've talked about punk enough how do we feel about selling out (laughs) okay selling out i think i mean come on it's 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 a fast food commercial. We all know corporations are evil, but Gordon Gano making a quick buck off letting them use his song doesn't make the art worse. It's a drop in the bucket for the corporation's profits and therefore ability to commit evil. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do, it probably, Gordon Gano didn't even put any work into having that license. Probably someone who works for Gordon Gano did that. I think the selling out thing, the music and ads thing, I think is totally overblown. I can get having a distaste for it, but so many people in the music industry like start foaming at the mouth when this topic comes up. And I think it's a little bit of a of an overly sensitive topic that's not really that important. Mm-hmm. I would describe myself as being highly critical of it and definitely having a distaste for it because like obviously I hate capitalism we know this I've been like this for over a decade but I think the controversy with this particular thing for me like why I think it's annoying is the fact that only one guy has songwriting credits for something Mm -hmm. that an entire band put together and then he's still like profiting off of it and selling out. Right. So he's selling out without the consent of the rest of the band and without paying the rest of the band, presumably. Right. Um, so that's where I have beef with this particular one. Selling out, I don't think is inherently evil. Um, I understand that like you need to do something to live. And if you feel like music is the only job you can ever have, fuck it, man. Put a Niggy Pop song in a Carnival Cruise commercial. I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> but 
it also does affect me because then I go back and I listen to that song. Like Iggy Pop's Lust for Life was literally used in a Carnival Cruise ad. And every time I listen to Lust for Life, I'm like, fuck, this song is so good, but I can't stop thinking about being geriatric and at sea right now. So <laughs> some of it, like it does get to me, but I also am like, make your coin, whatever. I think it depends. I don't know. I, It's a personal issue. Ultimately, I think you have to work through it and set it aside and learn to appreciate the song, despite the fact that you heard it in an ad for like some spa somewhere well i think ultimately what this boils down to is i highly doubt that if brian ritchie got any of the money on that wendy's deal that he would have rejected it like for him to pretend right. like he's like holier than thou because of his gourmet sensibilities or whatever <laughs> yeah like oh you're too good for a four for four fuck you dude yeah, fuck you man when like, these nuggets are good fuck I you fuck with a four for four like hard four for four saved my life for like three years oh yeah yeah love the four for four love to Great. get four of them <laughs> four for four for four <laughs> 16 of course total non-sellout behavior when Summerfest asked them all to come back in 2013 Richie did and he and Gano are still making music together so yeah you're obviously reuniting for publicity you're reuniting not because you know that people care about the music you're currently making I'm sure they probably do but like obviously violent femmes are not chart toppers Mm -mm. um at least not in 2013 like Mm -hmm. You're obviously just reuniting and leaning on that name and you're still like resting on the laurels of this one release that happened to be really good. Right. So, I mean, I, I hate, yeah, I hate that he acts like he's too good for it. Cause it's like, in reality, you are a band who had like one and a half really popular albums and then kind of just had a cult following from there on. You didn't really fall off but it's not like you're doing Super Bowl halftime shows. So you need to get your money where you can get it. Right. Even if that's a fucking Wendy's ad. Yeah. And I mean, I think, again, that's like kind of the dream, right? Like to be a band that is not so fucking big that it's traumatizing. It's a really good problem to have to be able to coast off of something that you released in 1983. Yeah. Like, I, it's probably also very frustrating and somewhat stifling as an artist. When sure, but whatever. 12 songs of everything that you've produced um obviously you do have a core fan base that really does know and that should be enough to keep you going right. um because you're getting paid for it regard like the masses are still paying you for your self-titled album yeah. so I feel like it might be kind of nice to just like like you said like break in all the riches from that and then just kind of coast and basically make what you want to make because you're not so high that you can be knocked down by any little thing like you're right. not on such a pedestal publicly and socially and financially that if you make one like sidestep your whole career is over your career has been flatlining the whole time which is actually a blessing because you did have one peak that you're still getting paid for without having to meet like record label pressures and social pressures i agree man hands down you're allowed to age and raise your son in peace man what what do you want right yeah right but yeah i just it's they're they're a weird band to start with he was 17 Brian Ritchie was, you know, probably like 20 or something. And then Victor's like 26. They're, they're just all at different places in their life. And they're just getting really, really lucky, you know? So it's always seemed like kind of a weird, a, a, an odd couple situation. But it worked. I mean, people liked it. And 
people still like it. They're currently 2021 on tour um, with their newest drummer named John Sparrow, who is significantly younger than all of them, but I don't know anything else that he's done with Mud Honey. So if you're into that lineup, you should go check them out. I've been thinking about it. They don't tour in the South. Duh. Uh, they still play. Hit. Why? They're Baptist. People would love them. <laughs> but, well, that's what's so curious to me about Gano is like his writing is so like on the first album anyway, it seems very angsty and and uh, immoral and like atheistic almost, you know? It's well, so he did shocking. say he's writing that... from a character, so I assume he's not the speaker. Sure, sure, but I guess you got to get it out somewhere. Yeah, I guess he's. I I don't know. Um, what? I assume we're at the end of the like the history of the album itself. So yeah, I don't know what um character he was writing from the perspective of if he was like personifying like the worst person he could think of like is this his like clockwork orange moment what is this <laughs> no i mean i really think he does i haven't found any interviews that go into great detail in fact when people ask him about the meaning of his songs he's like i don't i don't know like i just i don't know i wrote them in high school like those are just songs that i wrote down i, I feel like some of them are just like catchy uh rhyming lyrics you know catchy yeah, phrases I, I listen to it and i definitely think this is an album written by a teenager like i didn't know until now i didn't know how old he was when he wrote them but i was like even if he was older these are definitely songs about being a teenager for teenagers yeah because nobody just, has thought this way like and give me the car like nobody thinks about that past the age of 18 of course not of hopefully. course not oh well yeah hopefully uh right so i guess i would love to hear y'all's thoughts that's basically it for me <clears throat> well this here album is a 6.5 out of 10 for me mm. there's a lot of stuff here that i really enjoy uh but the, the personality doesn't really click with me which is a big thing for a lot of really good music for me uh i find more and more that i have to feel like i want to hang out with the band or the musician um and i don't know what it is i don't find them like inherently dislikable but something about it just doesn't click with me i'm not sure exactly what that is I, like i said i think the music is really stripped back and simple i like the sound of it uh i really like i mean objectively i really like gano's personality i like the lyrics and the singing uh, I really enjoy the mixing of folk and punk because Emily had called it in our last episode folk punk and I'd never thought of it that way. I've heard the album several times because it was in Emily's car for like two years in the CD player and I never thought of it that way. I thought of it's like pop folk but as soon as she said folk punk it like clicked and then when I listened to it I, I was like I totally I totally get that. And I think it's a really interesting mixture. Uh, I'm sure one that's been done a lot that I have not heard most much of. I think it's really interesting. Um, there are a couple songs on here that I really like. The first three are in the shuffle bag, okay? The first three are in the shuffle bag. Uh, I also like Gone, the last two, Gone Daddy, Gone and Good Feeling. Um, so, you know, it's all right. It's a short album and I got bored in the middle. And like I said, I can't quite put my finger on why that is. 
Another thing I noticed is that they're really good at pop hooks. A lot of the hooks are really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed them. And that's why I like the first three so much. I wish there was more on here like that really disgustingly offensive song that you played for me the other day off one of their other albums. The Black Girls song? Yeah, yeah. Like that. I mean, obviously the lyrics in that are heinous, but I love like the crazy jazz thing going on with the saxophone going crazy and the drums and stuff. I like that. Angel, the lyrics are basically the song is it's it's built like every other fucking song that they have, which is it's really short and it has really short lines and stuff and it's basically just Gano saying, I like the black girls so much better than the white girls because they are easier to sleep with. I like the white guys better than the black guys because they're easier to get along with. Um, and obviously there's a bunch of tropes going on, like Jezebel situation, you know. So it could very, very easily be a commentary. It could also not be a commentary. We just don't know. And from what I can tell, no one's really held him like accountable for that song. Um, I couldn't find any interviews where people question him about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just think it's another case. We've talked about this a lot on this podcast. It's just hard when stuff like this is written by white people or people that shouldn't necessarily shouldn't be saying these things. It's just hard to tell. It just gets really messy and you don't uh-huh. know. I yeah. think the lyrics to that are absolutely heinous. Right, of course, they're absolutely is that he's being sincere. I didn't get a satire vibe from it. Of course, sometimes it's hard to tell. Uh, but what I'm referring to is like the musical element of it that was kind of like almost free jazz with mm-hmm. full punk drumming in the back. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I wish there was more of that on this album. I think it would have kept me interested in the middle. Sure. My first instinct is to say that that other song that you guys brought up, um, the Black Girl song, is that what you said it's called? Yeah, it's called Black Girl. My first instinct is to say that it's satire, but I haven't heard the song. I just I just want to believe that he doesn't actually espouse any of those views. But... Well, I mean, like, poor views are riddled all over this album, you know? I mean, there's uh-huh. the, the date rape song, <laughs> Give Me the Car. <laughs> but I just assume... I'm just giving him the benefit of the doubt and I just assume that because they're like artsy fartsy teenagers that they understand to at the time that they understand to a degree that it's bad but they're singing from a perspective of a character and I assume because he says he's it about Baptist that he like I guess holds himself to a specific standard and I want to hope that he's a good one and like <laughs> because the Baptists like, are known for their excellent race relations no 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 that's not what I mean what I mean is like I want like I I get the vibe based on what you guys have told me throughout this episode that he considers himself an exception like because he says that he doesn't let it inform his political sure. view. Obviously, that will subconsciously happen whether you want it to or not. Obviously, he's not going to escape all that. And he's from an older generation that wasn't as encouraged to check themselves all the fucking time. So there is obviously a huge, huge, huge chance that he is still bigoted, but doesn't think that of himself, doesn't consider Mm -hmm. himself to be that way. Mm -hmm. But because of what I know, I want to assume that he does know better and is trying to parody people that maybe he knows or something. I don't know. Yeah, he could just be singing from the perspective of a shitty white kid, but because he's a white guy, it's really hard to tell if he's 
genuinely a shitty white kid or if he's a little more self-aware than that i i think that's the kernel of the whole situation is that it very well could be satire i would love to believe that it's satire but because he is a white man it's just difficult to know this is a really upsetting discussion for me as a frank zappa fan i just want to say <laughs> i was gonna say i feel like we just had this conversation <laughs> oh i guess i should give my thoughts on the album um, yeah I don't have anything super technical to say about this one. Uh, I don't have any big brain thoughts at all. Um, I do like how this is almost like an incel album, but I don't think incels like it. I just listen to it and I'm like, this person is an incel. I, okay, I just want to say something about Blister in the Sun. I saw recently, a, I think it was a Tumblr post and it was like, um, what are some songs that incite rage in you in the first few notes? And I was going through like the tags of what people had left because it was just entertaining to me. And I saw Blister in the Sun and I was like, I've never heard of any. I used to have a coworker that played it all the time. And even then I was like, I fuck with this song every time. But um, I don't know. As soon as I read that, I was like, you know, I kind of get it. And so this time listening through to the album, this is not my first time hearing the album, but this time listening through, I was like, I could kind of understand why you would hate this album. Like, I would get why you would not like it at all. And I don't like folk punk. So there is some part of my brain that like 10% doesn't like this album. But the other 90% really likes it. And there's only like a couple of skips. I am going to disagree with Jackson. I I don't know why. Um, and I'm not going to act like this is an extremely sophisticated feeling on my part, but I hate good feeling. <laughs> I listen to it and Mom, I just like me... want to skip it. I fucking hate it. I don't know why. You know, you know why I hate it? Cause it's bad. Good oh, I like it feeling. because of. Won't you stay with? It's so fucking annoying. I, got... I like it because of the Western swing vibes. I love Western swing. It's one of my favorite genres ever. But most people hate Western swing, and I understand why. It's a guilty pleasure. But I love Western Swing, and it's got Western Swing vibes, so I like it. Voice is also very annoying generally, and yeah. usually it, like, works. But in this song, he's, like, actually sing-singing, I feel like. And it just, it's not it for me anyway. Like the Rolling Stones like... and Wild Horses. <laughs> he's just, okay, like, whining. I don't know what it is, but I fucking hate it. Well, that's what you generally hate about folk punk right yes yes i hate whiny. how there's just such a the vocal the vocal quality of songs with folk punk really get on my fucking nerves and i don't know why because i listen to some annoying shit and i know that um there's just something about like i like folk i like punk i don't like it as much when they're together there are a few exceptions but i just don't like it together um there's just something about the way that people sing and like i don't know that there's just like it just grates on me and gives me a headache a lot yeah so i think that's the 10 percent of my brain that doesn't like this album is the part that hates folk punk um i will say that my favorite songs are confessions and promise i don't know why um i just kind of like the lyrics to promise a lot um i like how they both build and get kind of intense I like how uh, Promise is just kind of punched out. I mean, all of them are kind of punched out, but this one especially so. Um, yeah, Added Up is great. 
Um, Kiss Off is a BPD anthem as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Um, and please do not go. I have a question. It seems like he's singing with like this weird fake patois and I have to know what the fuck that's supposed to be because I heard this song and I was like, why is he doing this weird voice? I don't like this. You know what? I never picked up on this before. Please Don't Go is the song on this album I listen to the most. It does kind of have a reggae ska thing going on. It does. That's, it sounds yeah, that's yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like huh. I think, yeah, I think subconsciously that's also why I was thinking patois is because I'm hearing like these dub lines and I'm like, what are you fucking doing? I bet that's what it is. I bet it I bet it's because it's it's a little uh ska. Oh so I always thought the first lyric was tell your mom I'm stuck on this lovely girl. Was but it tell it's tell your mom. Oh my, I See? thought it was tell your mom too. I've been confused See? by that lyric for years. Like, why does your mom care? I'm not crazy. No, I never said that you were. I just didn't understand. We, we now cracked I do. the code. We cracked the code. We're blowing the top off. Tell your mom I just think it's funny that I was like, does anyone else think this song is racist? And you guys were like, what? And then no. you're slowly like, oh my God, this song might be racist. <laughs> I mean, it's racist just because it's like appropriative and it just like assumes a lot. And it's just kind of like, in poor taste that kind of racist mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like i don't know if it's necessarily explicitly hateful but it's like definitely not a good idea i agree but That's yeah fun. promise and confession are my favorite also love ugly and give me the car um and those are basically my only thoughts on the album like i said i didn't i didn't go too deep in i think the songs are fairly uncomplicated and i like that yeah. um I like how stripped back they are. I like that at certain points um, I can hear basically uh, instruments entirely on their own <laughs> during certain periods of the song. Like they're just so separate. Right. Um, I like that kind of probably low budget production value. Um, I think this album is really cool. I read um, something earlier that said something like because they didn't use like a synthesizer or anything like that this album doesn't sound like it's from the 80s i think when i first heard this album i also assumed it was 90s because it just sounded like that to me Mm -hmm. um so when i found out it was like 83 i was like what the fuck these guys were making music that barely anybody else was making in 83 Mm -hmm. they wouldn't make for another like 10 years it does have big 90s vibes yeah like i i think like that's why it's stood up for so long like obviously it's a very simple album but in the same thing with like never mind the bollocks it's like it's so simple and that's why it works right totally agree totally agree those are well, my obviously thoughts. i i i love this album and i think it's a testament to how much music paired with certain time periods in your life can stick with you and how everyone has certain favorites that aren't necessarily favorites because they're technically amazing or, you know, have reached some sort of critical acclaim, but rather because of the time that they knew them in, in their life. And that's that's what this album is for me. It reminds me of driving to uh, Chattanooga to see my friend when when right after we graduated high school and he went to UTC and I went to... Pellissippi you know it was just like it's it every time I drove down there and I only had a CD player in my car as you guys know so I just listened to the CD nonstop and learned it front to back and then I would listen to other things but I would always go back to this album and I just it's so angsty and I was so angry at the time 
I don't know. It's something like the the vibe of this album makes me feel like an adolescent again, and I think that's why it's so close to my heart. Um, my favorite songs on the album, I mean, it's not exactly a no-skip song because I will skip Good Feeling because I don't really like Good Feeling. You guys are crazy. All right, next week we're doing a Western Swing album. <laughs> well, not necessarily because... Um, because of the Western swing, I just think his voice sounds awful and annoying on it. Love Kiss Off, Love Bliss. Honestly, yeah, the whole first side, it, one through five, I mean, I just love every song. So it's a near no skip for me. Um, oh, Jackson, you should listen to Ugly, which is a bonus track on that on that CD. It's okay. Like, so ugly, was Ugly ever released as a single? Because it really should have been. Not that I know of. There, there's a song that I listen to sometimes uh, when I'm having body image problems and want to laugh about it instead of obsessing over it. Yeah. It's by Ween and it's called Big Fat Fuck. Yeah. And it's just, it's it just this weird, nasty bass groove. It's like, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and the only lyrics are, Big Fat Fuck. <laughs> Feeling like a big fat fuck, and it gets it. It's this amazing guitar solo in the middle. It's like five minutes long, and it's perfect. I'm gonna think about that song every day for as long as I live, Jackson. Thank Burp. you. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'll send it. I'll send it. Angel, do you still have Messenger? I do. I'm gonna share it with both of you right now. Please do. Um. So yeah, that's that's that is how I feel about this album. I love it. It. It sits with me as a forever album, and I feel like I should probably be buried with it, like in my coffin, like this album and maybe A Fever You Can't Sweat Out by Panic at the Disco. Just like one under each <laughs> arm. Yeah. Best way to make sure you never get grave robbed. <laughs> day after day, I
mom, oh my mom, have you kept your eye, your eye on your son? I know you've had problems, you're not the only one. When your sugar left, you left you on the run. So mom, oh my mom, oh my mom, oh my mom, take a look now at what your boy has done. He's walking around like he's number one. He went downtown and he got all my guns. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. You know you got my sympathy, but don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. Don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. You know you got my sympathy, but don't shoot, shoot, shoot that thing at me. So, because CC's fucking dropped the ball on staying alive during the pandemic, we had to resort to another thought, previously thought favorite, Bagel Bites. But upon further review, I don't know if they're so hot, y'all. I'm glad that I'm not going to be too polarizing in this. I'm not going to sound like I think I'm gourmet or something. Great. Here's the thing. Like, I feel like because it's a bagel, I can't judge it as if it's a pizza crust but the thing about it is it's also not a good bagel um it's like weird i put it in the oven okay i didn't put this in the microwave i really tried to give myself an optimal experience and it was just kind of like wet and chewy yeah um and like bland at the same time uh the sauce is sweet but not extremely so so like i guess i'll give it a pass the pepperoni is like really fucking salty um, and the cheese, I bit into it directly out of the oven because I have a dragon's mouth um, and I can do that. Um, it was fine. I rem- also remember them being bigger, but I do think that the size now is perfect because I ate like seven of them and I didn't feel it as much as if I had eaten them um, at the size I remember them being. So, all in all, I'm going to say four and a half out of 10. I'm not too good for it, but I'm, I don't know why I bought 24 of them. Uh, well, the store was out of the smaller box. Mm-hmm. So, that's the main reason why I bought 24 of them. Right. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel similarly, honestly. Like, I thought that I really love them. I, I have nostalgia a- is a fucking liar. It really, really is. It's a dirty liar. Be- I have some. I have these amazing high school memories of scarfing down pizza bagels and, and watching horror movies, but but like they were n- never that good. Or if they were, they have since become bad because I agree they're just chewy. Um, I didn't get like the salty pepperoni, but that sounds about right. And the cheese was not good. And I did the oven too. Like I gave it as good of a chance as it possibly could have. I think this is this is my theory. I think my memory, because I haven't had one in years, has been clouded by the K-Brew pizza bagel. I don't know if any of you guys have had the pizza bagel at K-Brew, but it is absolutely amazing. If you are a local K-Brew pizza bagel, you got to have it. The ba- Oh, and get it on the jalapeno cheddar bagel. Oh, my God. Very little jalapeno involved in the situation, but it's a good bagel nonetheless. And it's a much better pizza bagel than Bagel Bites will ever give you. So that's that's that on that. Bagel Bites, I feel like, are very much a letdown considering they're a name brand product. Like, 
I got it out of the oven and I bit into it and I was like, this tastes like a generic brand version of what a bagel bite should be to me. <laughs> oh my God, what is the Laura Lynn bagel bite going to taste Yeah, like? I just feel like they phoned it in, man. And I know it's for kids. I know I'm not the target demographic, but Jesus Christ. I also didn't eat them that much as a children, as a child. So <laughs> I didn't eat them that much as one singular child. So I don't, rem I don't have like nostalgia attached to them either. Yeah. This is the only time I have purchased bagel bites on my own on purpose. Um, I will not be doing that again. I just got to say, uh, I agree in general. Uh, I don't think store-bought is a good way to eat pizza bagels. And most places that make pizza bagels there in-house, uh, are gonna have real pizza, which I think crust is a better base for the ingredients than a bagel. So I can't imagine ever eating one. I'm sure you could make a good one though. All in all, soggy bagel, salty roni, shitty cheese, uh, unremarkable sauce, too small. And a relatively good album. Yep. <laughs> Rock and roll. Real middle of the road stuff this week, guys. Really <laughs> wonderful. I mean, don't I, I, I love this album. It's not middle of the road for me, but still. It sounds like we really hit a nice uh, equilibrium there. Is that the right? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I definitely think the album is better than the pizza by far. Yeah, album better than the pizza. Pizza better than nothing. Better than no pizza. Better than no pizza. All right, guys. Well, thank you for listening. As usual, you can follow us on Instagram at Pizza Spins, Facebook Pizza Spins. Please write us a review on Facebook. It would mean the world to us. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on, Jackson. What are we doing next week? Oh, God, I always forget. Next week, we're going to do Get Lost by the Magnetic Fields, mm. and we are going to have Red Baron Pepperoni Pizza. Awesome. Awesome. I can't wait for that. Love Magnetic Fields. I'm completely unfamiliar, so we're going to have a good time. Awesome. Well, thanks for sticking with us, guys. We love you, and we will see you in the future. Bye. Bye. Bye.